Life will test your character. Life will test your faith. Life will test your capacity to forgive. Life will test your comprehension of love. Life will test your vision. Life will test your commitment to responsibility. Life will test your resolve and resilience. We are driven by the velocity of life. We are defeated by the velocity of life. We are diminished by the velocity of life. We somehow know in our souls we are more than the velocity of life. After he had spoken to the leaders, the king walked into the great tent. He wanted to be quiet for a moment, quiet before God. He gave a huge offering, acknowledging that God was preeminent in his life. And after that offering, again, he, he remained quiet for a few moments. And then a light chill ran across the back of his neck as he heard the voice of God speak to him. And a question came. What do you want, Solomon? Tell me what you want. I will give it to you. What would you say in that moment? What would you do being asked that question from God himself? Solomon really didn't think too long. And he said, all I want, all I want is wisdom and knowledge. Everybody looks to me. They're trying to figure out life. They're trying to understand what's happening. There are so many challenges that people have, and, and if you could give me the wisdom to bring to the people, to your people, that is all that is all I want. That is all I ask with all my heart. God said, because you have asked for that and for not to have anything for yourself, I'm going to give you that wisdom, Solomon. I'm going to give you that kind of understanding. And I'm also going to give you riches. And I'm also going to give you just so much, it's going to be overwhelming. You are going to be the greatest king that's ever lived. You're going to be the, the one that has more than, than anybody has. And I'm giving that because you were humble and you only asked for wisdom. And then Solomon was quiet for a moment. He turned and he walked out of the, the great tent and he pondered what these things would mean. The year is 967 B.C. Solomon had 12,000 horses. It's a lot of horsepower. 12,000 horses. He had 1,400 chariots. Imagine having 1,400 cars your favorite cars, you can have all one kind of car, 1,400, fill in the blank. I'm going to fill in my blank with a 
a Volkswagen convertible, because that's all I want, and that's what I have. But I would like lots of different colors of Volkswagen convertibles, and maybe I'll branch out to other kinds of convertibles. 1,400 of whatever vehicle you want. Think about it. He composed 3,000 proverbs in his wisdom. He wrote over 1,000 songs with his artistic mind. He had 700 wives. It was impossible to have date night. It was impossible. He, he ruled for 40 years in Jerusalem. Equivalent to 10 presidential terms. It's a, it's a long time. And he tried and he tried in this, in this book to pull together everything that was potentially understandable, everything that would distill wisdom so that he could give it away. And, and he kept coming up, he kept coming up empty because it's so much more than what meets the eye. So in Ecclesiastes 2, he's going to struggle with it. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I said to myself, Come now, I will test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. The other day I was at a Spring Branch family's home. I was given this napkin. I looked at it. Wine improves with age. The older I get, the more I like it. <laughs> kind of ties into the scripture here. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. I'm not going to point out the family, although I think you, you, might, you might be here this morning. I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly. My mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself. It was HGTV all the time, 24-7. Knock it down, build it up, pick your house. And, and I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward, the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Then I turned my thoughts to consider wisdom and also madness and folly. 
What more can the king's successor do than what has already been done? I saw that wisdom is better than folly, just as light is better than darkness. The wise have eyes in their heads, while the fool walks in the darkness. But I came to realize that the same fate overtakes them both. Then I said to myself, the fate of the fool will also will overtake me also. What then do I gain by being wise? I said to myself, this too is meaningless. For the wise, like the fool, will not, long, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. So I hated life because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of, it's, all of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. I hated all the things I had toiled for under the sun because I must leave them to the one who comes after me. And who knows whether that person will be wise or foolish, yet they will have control over all the fruit of my toil into which I have poured my effort and skill under the sun. This, too, is meaningless. So my heart began to despair over all my toilsome labor under the sun. For a person may labor with wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and then they must leave all they own to another who has not toiled for it. This, too, is meaningless and a great misfortune. What do people get for all the toil and anxious striving with, with which they labor under the sun? All their days, their work is grief and pain. Even at night, their minds do not rest. This, too, is meaningless. A person can do nothing better than to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil. This, too, I see, is from the hand of God. For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? To the person who pleases Him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. But to the sinner, he gives the task of gathering and storing up wealth to hand it over to the one who pleases God. This, too, is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Solomon needed to, to listen to Joel Osteen. What is going on? He's coming up empty all the time here. It's empty. It's meaningless. What is going on? If I know anything about life, I know it is filled with hills and valleys. And the hills, they all have names. And you know the name of the hill that you're on right now. And each valley has an emotion as deep as the valley itself. And you know that emotion right now. You have to climb some steep slopes and walk with trepidation through some swampy, slippery, and meandering valleys. Hills and valleys put their mark on us. They stretch us in ways we didn't want to stretch and grow us in ways we weren't expecting to grow. We didn't want to grow that way, God. Ways we might not have chosen for growing. I didn't, I didn't pick this way, God. There's often a tension in that. We pull away from the pain and struggle. We get paralyzed by the weariness that comes from another daunting hill, another mushy valley to traverse, like Paul did when he talked about his thorn in the flesh and how he just begged God to take it away from him. In Ecclesiastes 2, we see a connection in a way between Solomon and Paul. Over a thousand years have transpired there, and yet there's a hill. 
River Valley. Sometimes we, we say, God, just take it away. Stephen Furtick asked a great question the other day. Could it be that you're asking God to remove the very thing he's been trying to reveal himself through? It's a good question. Could it be that you're asking God to remove the very thing he's been trying to reveal himself through? The hill and or the valley that's taking you somewhere that you really need to go because you're going to grow and you're going to stretch in a way that, that he sees you need for what's happening in the future of your life, in the future of your years and your days. Sometimes what happens in moments like that is you get driven to your knees. There's a small room, there's one small room in Virginia Beach that's, at this point, one of my favorite rooms in all of Virginia Beach. And I was in it the other day. A few years back, I was invited to to participate in the Good Friday service at Galilee Episcopal Church. So I said, yes. I didn't know when I said yes that they were going to dress me up in what I affectionately called at the time the holy pajamas. I mean, they, they just put me in this stuff that I looked like one of those little choir boys on the front of a Christmas card or, or something. And, and then they stuck me up in this elevated pulpit in front of everybody with the holy pajamas. But before I had the holy pajamas, I was wandering around, and I, I, I fell into this room almost by accident. I opened the door. I think it was cracked open. I pushed it open, and there's a small chapel. And it's a very, very sweet little room. And the meaning of the room is embroidered on these kneeling cushions. It says, Come unto me, all ye that travail and are heavy laden. And it stops right there. And as you look up, you see Jesus looking down at you. And you remember that he said, I will give you rest. But in that moment, as you kneel on the, on the cushions, you know that you don't feel that rest right then. Is it possible that you're asking God to remove the very thing he's been trying to reveal himself through? God's always doing something. He's doing something with hills and valleys in our lives. Solomon is telling us about the hills and valleys of his life. Through his hills and valleys, he's asking us to look at our hills and valleys. One of his hills is the struggle to find happiness. One of his valleys is the journey of desire. He says, whatever I saw, I could make it happen, and I did make it happen. But it still was a valley that I was slogging through. It didn't ultimately make me feel any better. The racetrack of economic security was a hill that he had to run on. He had all the, the wealth, an enormous stockpile of wealth. Wealth that we can't even imagine in our own lifetime. What it would quantify to was just another hill. And then there was another hill after that, and another one after that. The pursuit of wisdom was a valley that he went through. And, 
And he was given the gift of wisdom. And the gift of wisdom kept going around and around and around. And it kept being another valley. The anxious walking into a future you can never predict or control. You just keep walking. You get weary. He didn't know that was going to happen. It became a, an enormous hill to climb. And maybe you're still climbing it today. The struggle to find happiness, the journey of desire, the racetrack of economic security, the pursuit of wisdom, the anxious walking into a future you can never predict or control. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired, he said. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. So I hated life. Every day when I got up, I couldn't make really any sense of it at all. And I'm the king because the work that is done under the sun was grievous to me. All of it is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. While we won't reach his final conclusion until chapter 12, we can pause to realize what direction he's heading in. And it's just tucked into a little verse in chapter 2, right there near the end. 2.26. To the person who pleases him, God gives wisdom, knowledge, and happiness. And Solomon's hinting at something about the equation. If you just go after life for what life can give you, you'll just go in circles and nothing will make any sense, really. But if you go at God with everything you have, if you order your life in a relationship with Him that drives everything, somehow something's going to come out of that, that that's bigger than everything. When you go back and take a closer look at chapter 2, something should jump out at you. It jumped out at me. And I never saw it this way before. I said to myself, I tried cheering myself with wine. I undertook great projects. I made gardens and parks. I amassed silver and gold. I became greater. I denied myself nothing. I turned my thoughts. I must leave them. I have poured my effort and skill. Solomon is so caught up in himself that it's almost like in wisdom he gets blinded. It's almost like he has so much understanding that it, it sends him in every which direction. He can't find the yellow brick road. He doesn't know which way to go. He, he just doesn't, he doesn't see it yet. He continues to, to climb the hills. He continues to traverse the valleys. And he needs something more than all these things that he's been given. Could it be that you're asking God to remove the very thing he's been trying to reveal himself through? I came across a quote by an Austrian philosopher. And it's one of those things that just stopped me and made me think for a moment. He writes, Neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society. Think about what you read in the paper and think about what you've seen 
in your lifetime. Neither revolution nor reformation can ultimately change a society. Rather, you must tell a new powerful tale, one so persuasive that it sweeps away the old myths and becomes the preferred story. One so inclusive, it gathers all the bits of our past and our present into a coherent whole, one that even shines some light into the future so that we can take the next step. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. If you want to change a society, then you have to tell an alternative story. And, and that's one of those moments where you have to stop and ask yourself, what is that story? What is the story that my life is telling? See, Solomon had a story to tell, a story of God moving through the nation of Israel, a story of a whole nation being led out of Egypt by Moses into a, a land that God wanted to give them. It's a story of God's grace, the story of God's love. It's a story of God bringing to life a people who, who know him, who give themselves to him. And, and yet Solomon was still caught up in a story of I, 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 I. And that's always the tension. It's a tension for us to, uh, to get caught up in that story. I, 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 I have this, I want that, I'm going here, I'm going to do these things, uh, I'm going to make this decision, I'm going to have this opinion, I'm going to debate you on that, I, 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 and none of that is going to change anything really, not a revolution, not a reformation, but a, a new compelling story, and look at the story that God gave us, God gave us the story of he himself coming into the world as Jesus Christ. God gave us a story of magnificent grace where he would give his life for our life. He would provide a finished work of redemption on a cross 2,000 years ago so that we can know that we will live forever as we receive him into our lives, into our hearts because of what he did for us. His death on the cross was sufficient to take away our sins to bring us into this intimacy with God that is the reality of our faith. Our faith is not a bunch of things that, that we can just write out on a piece of paper. It's a heart-to-heart -heart relationship. It's a, I pray and the God of the universe listens and answers me. It's a compelling story. And so what I'm going to do now is I'm going to jump from 3,000 years ago where Solomon was trying to, to get us somewhere and he kind of gave us a, a hint, but he was sort of caught up in the I, 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 I. I'm going to jump 3,000 years into right now, 2017, where we have the compelling story that can change everything. A government can't change everything. A political leader can't change everything. But the power of God in Christ can change everything when we understand who we are as his people, who we are as the church. When Jesus said, I will build my church, he said, I'm going to build you as a group of men and women who are the compelling story. Because of the way people see you live, they're going to find understanding. Because of the way people see you live out a faith that doesn't make any sense logically, 
They're going to think twice about the I, 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 I lives that they're living and think about what your life represents. And so the challenge becomes to be a missional church. The word missional has, has taken on a, a certain um, gravity today within Christendom. It's taken on a, a certain new position of as, as if like this is like the we finally figured out the, the, the right way to be. In my lifetime... And in the lifetime of the church, there, there have been many, many movements, many movements, not the least of which is being celebrated this month in Germany with the 500th anniversary of Martin Luther's nailing of the 95 Theses on the church door at Wittenberg. But any, any movement is really reduced to this. Maybe we should do church the way Jesus said we should do church. Maybe we should be with each other in community the way the New Testament says we should be with each other in community. It's, it's never really new. It just is doing it the way Jesus wants us to do it and living it the way it's already written out. And so in his book, Serving a Movement, Tim Keller writes about the marks of a missional church, which is really saying, how about we just think about doing what we're doing the way Jesus wants us to do it? He says it first, a missional church, if it is to have missionary encounter with Western culture, we will need to confront society's idols. In other words, a society that believes in the philosophy of I, 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 I have to get it my way. It needs to pay off to me. I have to be safe. I have to be secure. You have to do everything according to my agenda. Those all become idols in the very real temporal sense of idols, and, and yet people still have a form of religiosity veneered on the outside. And so how do you do that? How do you confront that? The best way that I can figure out today to confront it is not verbally, but relationally. That somehow people in our society and our culture have to see us caring about them, have to see us being willing to do the things that they might not expect us to do. And suddenly we show up and we, we get the job done. A missional church, if it is to have missionary encounter with Western culture, will need to confront society's idols, but not arguing it, just living it. A missional church, if it is to reach people in a post-Christian culture, Let's recognize that most of our more recently formulated and popular gospel presentations will fall on deaf ears. There's got to be new ways of engaging people with the compelling story. And, and how do you do that? I'm going to tell you something that sounds crazy, you know, but I'm going to give you an opportunity to do that. On the 18th, we're having arguably one of the, the top events that we have during the year that has virtually little to no religious meaning at all or what might look like faith meaning at all because it's just called a hoedown. And we tell you to wear cowboy boots and dress like uh, old Western people dressed in those old movies and, and come out and, and, and eat holy barbecue and eat mac and cheese and, and, and do things and make funnel cakes. And, 
It, it just looks kind of bizarre, really. You know, and it's like one of the best things we, we get to do all year. So this is what I'm telling you. Invite anybody you want to that event. Anybody. And we will cover them. You don't have to pay for them. You don't have to plunk 40 bucks out of your pocket to bring a family. We're just going to take care of it. I know the bookkeeper's freaking out right now. You know, how, how are we going to figure that one out, Michael? I, I don't know. I just, I just say things. You guys figure them out, okay? Um, you just invite anybody you want. Just let us know they're coming so we can get some extra barbecue and extra mac and cheese and, and all those good things and cookies. But you just bring them because people will do that before they'll even show up to hear a compelling message. They want to hear a compelling message of, do you even care about who I am? And you're saying, Michael, do you have any biblical reference for that kind of a thing? And I said, well, I think Jesus fed a lot of people with a kid's lunch one time. And, and that sort of makes me think that, that people like to eat, and he knows that people like to eat, and he provides food. So we're going to do the same thing. You invite anybody you want. And then after you do that, then you say, you might want to come to a big concert that we're having at Christmas, right before Christmas. It's called Toys for Tots. You might, you might want to come to our Christmas Eve services. We have, we have five of them. And, and you start to think about fitting into a post-Christian culture in a way that gets beyond what people's expectations are. A missional church will affirm that all Christians are people in mission in every area of their lives. John Fruit is a banker. He gets up and he goes to work at Town Bank every day. And he looks like a banker and he talks like a banker and he does banker stuff. He's a banker. But he's not, really. He's a servant of Jesus Christ. And so when he sat up there in the balcony and he said, yes, I, I guess I could do that. I'm not sure what that means. He was understanding that every moment of his life belongs to the one who gave every moment of his life to him. And so a missional church is a group of people that realize, like, I'm in mission all the time. I'm in mission when I leave this building. I'm in mission when I go to work tomorrow. I'm in mission if I'm taking care of children tomorrow. Whatever I'm doing, I'm in mission. Everybody connected in ministry and mission. Everybody looking like Jesus. It's the only way it works. A missional church must understand itself as a servant community, a counterculture for the common good. When we go to Jay Cox Elementary School, when we serve at the Judeo Christian Outreach Center, whatever we do out there that's just giving ourselves away is countercultural. It's serving. Jesus, if you want to look at it in Philippians 2, he became a servant. If you want to look at it in John where he washes the feet of the disciples, he became a servant. And, and we are most like him when we mentally and then physically serve each other. You want to be like him? Everybody looking like Jesus? This involves serving. A missional church must be, in a sense, porous. And that's just an unusual word. It just means to be open to whoever wants to come and they can bring their baggage. They can have a question that we can't answer. But we're, we're there them. We're there to walk with them. You know how many people use profanity to my face? A lot. 
and not because it's something that I did, although that has happened too, <laughs> mostly in parking lots over parking spaces. But, but you know, I never, I never stop people and say, how dare you use profanity to my face? I am a clergyman. I clerge. I clerge you right now. Stop. Stop that. I never, I just let that go, use it once, use it twice, use it three times, because sooner or later, they've got to tell me what they want to say. And sooner or later, I want them to know that I'm willing to listen to what they're going to say, even when it's punctuated with some spicy words. I want, I want them to know I'm looking you in the eye, and you are important to me right now. And that's what it means to be porous. We let people in to our lives. They don't have to you know, fit our checklist. A missional church should practice Christian unity on the local level as much as possible. And, and you know, for years, you know what we did? We let the world see Christianity as a group of divided tribes. There's Presbyterians over there, there's Catholics over there, there's uh, Episcopalians over there, there's Methodists over there, there's Lutherans over there, there's Pentecostal people over there, and there's non-denominational people, and there's all kinds of varieties, umpteen varieties of that, and, and that's who we are. And the world is going, if that's who you are, if you can't even figure this out, then why should we be a part of that? There's got to be love and grace between men and women who call Jesus Christ Lord and Savior. We've got to work hard to cross those boundary lines and to, to think together about how we can tell a compelling story. And how we can do it through our lives. And that's the real question that comes out of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Solomon is crying out for a compelling story. And God is about a thousand years away from just blowing everybody's mind and just showing up himself and saying, you couldn't do it, so I'm going to do it. You couldn't figure it out, so I'm going to tell you the answers. It comes down to I love you, and I love you so much, I'm going to give my life for you, and I'm going to send you out into the world to give your lives away. That's the only compelling story that'll make it all make sense, that'll make it all fit together. And yes, you're going to have hills, and yes, you're going to have valleys, but could it be that you're asking God to remove the very thing he's been trying to reveal himself through to get you to be mature enough that you can not live this I, 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 I life, and you can live something that's akin to what Jesus looked like? when he got down and washed feet. What Jesus looked like when he went to a cross. What is the compelling story that you want your life to tell? When you figure that out, the hills and the valleys are transformed. And together, Together, our compelling story becomes a light in the world that people long to see. Dear Heavenly Father, help us when we say, take it away, take it away, take it away. Help us when we say, it's my life, I want this, I want that. Father, help us to see Jesus. Help us to see that the hills and the valleys are leading to you, are leading to your kingdom. Father, make the hills and the valleys holy because you're 
holy hands are upon them as we journey, as we journey toward you. Father, don't let the velocity of our lives defeat us, but let it drive us toward you. In Jesus' name. shadows you wiped my tears away I felt the pain of heartbreak I've seen the brighter days and I prayed prayers to heaven from my lowest place and I've held your blessing God you give and take away and no matter what I have your grace is enough no matter where I am, I'm standing in your life. On the mountains, I will bow my life to the one who sent me there. In the valley, I will lift my eyes to the one who sees me there. When I'm standing on the mountain, I didn't get there on my own. When I'm walking through the valley, I 